Let us continue in worship as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 13. Acts 2, 1 through 13. Listen to the reading of God's word this morning. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. What a passage of scripture this morning. Today we are asking several questions, such as, why are you and I here this morning? How come we're here? Why are we Christians? Why is it that we find Christ lovely? Why is it that we rejoice in and understand God's word? Why is it that you and I persevere through our trials and our tribulations? Why does anyone come to faith in Jesus Christ? Why hasn't the church disappeared even under immense seasons of persecution throughout history? Why are there Christians at all? The answer is Pentecost. Now we will not answer each of those questions directly, but uh, we will address some of them at least indirectly as we go through our passage this morning. But the first thing that I want to do is I want to set Pentecost in Trinitarian and redemptive perspective. As we jump into our text, I see the need to give you some context. So if you're following the notes, I want to give Pentecost in Trinitarian and redemptive perspective. As we begin, let me remind you of two core Essential convictions of the Christian faith. First, God is one in 
There's some guessing going on as to what's the next phrase. God is one in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, we affirm what we know as the Trinity. But we do so without denying God's perfect unity in his very essence. Now, this means that while we affirm the Trinity, we deny three separate gods. Okay? It's going to get a little heavy today, but follow me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is how many? One. And you shall love the Lord your God. Let me ask you this. Who are we to love with all our heart, soul, and might? God. And who is this God? Well, according to the full revelation of Scripture, Old and New Testament considered, this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three separate divine entities that somehow share in Godhood. God is not made up of three different beings that make up the Godhead. God is not a division, but a unity. God is one in three. Therefore, we are Trinitarian. We are not tritheists. That's important. We are Trinitarian. We are not tritheists. We don't believe in three separate gods. One God, not three. Now, this leads us to our second core conviction. If there is one God, then there is only one plan of redemption. So, for instance, when we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, about the mighty works of who? God, the mighty works of God. Who are we to think about? Whose mighty works are those? Just the fathers? Just the sons? Or just the Holy Spirit? No. We are to think of the Trinity in unity. The mighty works are the works of the Godhead, meaning not just the works of the Father to the exclusion of the Son or of the Son to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit. There is no division within the operations of the Holy Spirit. Trinity. They don't have three separate agendas as though the father is wanting to do something. The son is doing something else. And then the spirit is doing something different. The mighty works of God are the mighty works of the Godhead, the three in one. In other words, the father doesn't get just part of the glory, the son, another part of the glory and the spirit, another part of the glory. No, when we sing to God be the glory, great things he has done. We are saying to the three in one, be glory. This is known as the inseparable operations of the Trinity. How many of you have heard of this theological idea before the inseparable operations of the Holy Spirit? Okay. Whoa. It's going to be interesting. But the point we're making is this. There is no division. There's no division within the operations of the Trinity. There's no division. They don't have three separate agendas. The mighty works of God are the works of the Godhead, the three in one. Therefore, we must exercise 
great care when we think of both the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We must exercise great care in how we understand both his identity and his role. John Owen, who wrote many, many, many pages on the Holy Spirit, is very helpful here. He said this, and I quote, The Holy Spirit is the immediate, peculiar, and efficient cause of all external divine operations. For God works by his spirit. From this, we understand that the same work is equally the work of each person of the Trinity. Is that very clear? Not a whole lot. As we enter into Acts chapter 2 and what is known as Pentecost or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we must not do so with the mentality that the Spirit's coming and subsequent, subsequent work is somehow separated from the work of the Father and the work of the Son as though the Spirit is doing his own thing and fulfilling his own agenda. No, rather, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, continues the work of the Father and the Son Although the members of the Trinity have been at work from all eternity in perfect, indivisible, and inseparable unity. So we affirm the Trinity as we enter into Acts chapter 2. Very important to keep that in mind. Now with those core convictions in mind, where do we start this morning? I think a, a good place to begin is by remembering the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 16 verse 7. And I'm going to read this to you. In this verse, the Lord Jesus said these seemingly perplexing and somehow somewhat odd words to the disciples. Listen to what he said. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Acts chapter 2 is the practical explanation and the historical application of that one theological truth. What theological truth? It is to our advantage that Jesus ascended into heaven so that the Holy Spirit would come. So what we see in Acts chapter 2 is the practical explanation and the historical application of what Jesus said in John chapter 16 verse 7. So let's consider now the historical setting of Pentecost. Verse 1, Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the historical setting of Pentecost. First, let me give you the occasion. What do we mean when we say Pentecost? Well, in a strict sense, Pentecost is not a reference to the actual event of the coming of the spirit. Rather, Pentecost is the name of a, the special day in which the spirit came. Pentecost was one of the Jewish celebrations. And it was also known as the Feast of Weeks, which was simply a celebration of the wheat harvest. The celebration took place 50 days after the Passover. In fact, in a literal sense, Pentecost, the word Pentecost means the 50th day, 
the 50th day. As the Jews completed their harvest, they would give thanks to God. And this was done in, on Pentecost or the, week, the Feast of Weeks. Moreover, this particular celebration of Pentecost would have drawn many, many, many Jews into Jerusalem. Thousands would have gathered around the temple courts to give thanks to the Lord during this 50th day or Pentecost. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 41, about 3,000 souls were saved on this day. So it would have been many thousands of people gathering for Pentecost, all of which perfectly fits the chronology of the events that we have covered so far in the book of Acts. Jesus died during the Passover. He rose again and he spent 40 days appearing to the disciples. He told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. After these 40 days, Jesus did what? He, I'm giving you a clue. He ascended into heaven. Therefore, the events recorded in Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 took place within how many days? How many days? Huh? I can't hear you. <laughs> 10 days is right. Very good. Thus completing the 50 days between the Passover and Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 then marks the end of the 10-day waiting period between the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit. That is why they are gathered. Consider with me second the attitude. The attitude. Notice how in verse 1 we read, they were all together in one place. Now, even though the togetherness of the disciples is obviously a physical togetherness, there's also the sense of togetherness of mind. Some of the older versions of the Bible will say that they were together with one accord in one place, like the King James Version or the New King James Version. This not only reveals the actions, but more importantly, it reveals their attitude. It reveals the attitude of the first disciples. These Christians were unified in patient dependence on and faith in God. First, they were patient in dependence on God. They knew that apart from the coming of the spirit, which was promised by the father, they could do nothing for Christ had already told them in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will notice the future tense. You will receive what, what you don't have, right? You will receive what you don't have, namely power. When the Holy spirit has come upon you, no spirit no power. Second, they were unified in patient faith, meaning they knew the father would send the spirit as Jesus said he would. So they waited and they also believed. Now let's consider now the supernatural events of Pentecost verses two to four. And suddenly there came from heaven as they were together there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. In this part, Luke records three specific events associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they are all supernatural in nature. This is what we call, these are what we call miracles, and they will not be repeated. They will not be repeated. Why? 
for this simple reason. The coming of the spirit is the outflow of the work of Jesus. Or to put it differently, Pentecost is also a gospel event. Remember what I said at the beginning, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working perfect indivisible unity. The coming of the spirit is also a gospel event. That being the case, it will not be repeated just as the work of Jesus will not be repeated. Now, having clarified that, let us consider the events themselves. First, a mighty rushing wind. Second, tongues as of fire. And third, speaking in tongues or glossolalia. That is the Greek word glossolalia. Now, I will deal with the first two events right now. But given the fact that we Baptists get nervous around tongues, I'll go ahead and skip that. Just kidding. Just kidding. The third phenomena is best understood in light of verses 5 through 11. So I will return to that in a few moments. Hopefully by then you will have forgotten about it. What are we to make of the wind and the fire? Well, throughout the Old Testament, both of these elements have to do with the presence of God. In fact, the Hebrew word for spirit. Do you know the Hebrew word for spirit? You know what that is? It's ruach. Ruach. It's a Hebrew word and it is also an onomatopoeic word. You know what that means, right? The onomatopoeic word means that the word represents the sound of the thing described. It represents the sound of the thing described. So when the Jews heard the wind, it sounded to them like ruach. What does it sound to us? We're boring, right? Wind. And this word came to mean spirit. So I say, I could say the ruach of the Lord came upon me. The spirit of the Lord came upon me. And this word came to mean spirit, as I said, but it was Jesus himself who compared the spirit to the wind in his conversation with who? John chapter three, Nicodemus, Nicodemus. Wind represents the presence of God. What about fire? Well, consider what happened after the dedication of Solomon's temple. According to second Chronicles chapter seven, verse one. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What these people are witnessing in Acts chapter two was nothing less than the very manifestation of the glory of God descending on the people of God in order to accomplish the work of God. The wind and the fire were unmistakable reminders to these Jews of God's presence and glory, which was directly associated with the temple the temple. Now, all of this gives us a clue as to the meaning of tongues. So since we can't avoid the topic any longer, let's dive in by considering our next main heading, the theological significance of Pentecost, the theological significance of Pentecost. This is going to be probably the, the meat of the sermon right here. There are several things that we see happening as the spirit descends during Pentecost. The first one is this, the tower of Babel is being reversed. The tower of Babel 
is being reversed. And this in two primary ways. First, the first reversal of the Tower of Babel from confusion to understanding. Consider what it says in verse six. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What happened in the Tower of Babel? In the Tower of Babel, they were united. The people of the earth, they were united in rebellion against God. During Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, the people were united in their faith in the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, the Lord caused, div caused division among men by confusing their language so that they cannot understand each other. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit causes unity among men by the gift of language so they could understand each other. There's an obvious implication of all this, and it goes as follows. If the outpouring of the Spirit is indeed a reversal of the Tower of Babel in the sense that the Spirit is bringing unity through languages or tongues, then these tongues that were being spoken must be known human languages. Otherwise, it would not make any sense. In other words, the, the disciples who were filled with the Spirit were not speaking unintelligible gibberish. The confusion that came during Pentecost was rooted in the fact that these men were speaking tongues the other people could understand. After all, they were speaking in our own tongues. That was the, the witness of the people. So when we read of tongues in Acts chapter 2, we are to think of human languages that were supernaturally given to the disciples. In that sense, tongues must mean common languages as in revelation chapter five, verse nine, where Jesus is said to have ransomed people from every tribe and tongue or languages, which is the same word that is used. Now here's the second reversal that we see from rebellion to obedience from rebellion to obedience. The tower of Babel was an affront to God's cultural mandate of Genesis 1:28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With the coming of the Spirit, Christians can now fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. But this expansion campaign of the knowledge of God had to start somewhere. And in this case, we see it started in Jerusalem with the Jews. However, the mention of people coming from all different nations means the people of God are meant to be an international people, no longer confined to a specific geographic or demographic segment. In fact, notice with me the very strategic location in which all of this happened. It says that it happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, why is this very strategic? It is for the simple reason that Jerusalem was essentially at the very center of the two competing empires of that time, namely Rome and Parthia. The nations mentioned in verses 9 through 11 would have been found in either of these empires. Literally the whole world, 
is coming into Jerusalem for the celebration of the feast of weeks or Pentecost. Therefore, the setup is perfect. What is happening in Jerusalem as people from all over the nation, if you look at the map, they're coming from all the corners of the earth to gather here for Pentecost. The setup is perfect. The setup for what? Think about it. People had come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, literally from all the corners of the earth, Jews from every nation under heaven, according to verse five. So the setup is perfect for what? For the blessing of Abraham to be granted, which is the second point. The blessing of Abraham is being granted. The blessing promised to Abraham was universal in nature. Remember what God told Abraham in you shall how many families, all the families of where the earth will be blessed. Now the work of Jesus procured or obtained this blessing of Abraham. Remember that nothing, no blessing can come apart from the work of Christ. So he did procure and secure the Abrahamic blessing. What was that blessing? The promised Holy Spirit. Consider this. Jesus, as a man, was bound to a physical body. His ministry was confined to a geographical location and to a small band of disciples. The Holy Spirit, however, is omnipresent. Thus, through the spirit who is invisible and unbounded by time or space, Christ bestows his blessing upon his people all over the earth. Let me show you how we know this. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Consider how the work of Jesus gives us also the blessing of the spirit. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive what? The promised Holy Spirit through faith. Christ's blessing goes to all the peoples of the earth in and by the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus builds his church and calls his elect to himself. It is all done through the promised Holy Spirit. During Pentecost, then... We see this Abrahamic blessing being granted. Therefore, it was indeed to our advantage, indeed, that Jesus went away in his ascension because through the spirit of the promise, who is omnipresent, this blessing had come even to us. Consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The first Adam became a living being. The second Adam, a life Given what? Spirit. How did this happen? With the coming of the spirit. 
This is how Jesus imparts his blessing on all the world. Number three, or letter C, the second significant aspect of the Pentecost is this. The end times temple is being built. The end times temple is being built. Those who go to my Spanish Sunday school know where I'm coming from. And I'm not going to tell you where I'm coming from. It's going to keep that a mystery. But consider how it says explicitly that they were all what? With the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God filled his temple. This was a demonstration of God's favor and blessing upon his people. Now God continues to fill his temple, but it is a better temple. It is called the church. And it is filled with the Holy Spirit. What we are seeing in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment, the beginning stages of the construction of God's eschatological or end times temple. But this temple is made up of people who have been washed by the blood of Christ and are being renewed day by day in the spirit. The stones in this temple are not inanimate objects, but living souls. And the cornerstone upon which this temple is built is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. Paul said it best. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. If you don't believe me, believe the apostle Paul, who said this in a very explicit way. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. In fact, let's read verse 18 as well. Consider again the Trinity the glory of the work, the inseparable work of the Trinity. Verse 18, Ephesians 2. For through him, meaning Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the, prof the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom... Christ Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God. By whom? By the Spirit. What are we seeing in Pentecost? Is the beginning stages of the construction of the eschatological temple of God where he dwells. Sam Storms said this, and I quote, beginning with the incarnation and consummating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, together with the progressive building of his spiritual body, namely the church, God is fulfilling his promise of an eschatological or end times temple in which he will dwell forever. Oh, the, the, the end times temple is much better than brick and mortar is the people of God filled with the spirit of God and letter D another significant aspect of Pentecost. The kingship of Jesus is being announced. The kingship of Jesus is being announced. Go back to Acts chapter two. If I had to choose one verse of chapter two 
that I believe is the center of the entire message of the second chapter would be verse 36, which is our memory verse for this uh, month. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Jesus, whom you crucified. Do you realize that this is the whole point of the chapter, the whole point of the book, the whole point of the New Testament, the whole point of the Old Testament? is to declare to the whole world that Jesus is Lord. But read with me in chapter 2, verse 32 and 33. Consider the connection between the coming of the Spirit and the kingship of Jesus. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy spirit, he, Jesus has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Why can Jesus send the Holy spirit? Because he has been exalted at the right hand of the father. The coming of the spirit is a confirmation For the whole world to see that the one who died on the cross and was buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and now he's king. And what you're seeing is a demonstration of this. My my brother and sister, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He has conquered your life, and he's molding you into his own image by the Holy Spirit. Now, I will save much of this discussion for later as we continue our study, but for now, this is what I want you to see. It would be absolutely correct to say that the coming of the spirit is in and of itself a blessing that flows out of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we should not, we must not, and we cannot separate the work of Christ from the work of the spirit. Even though Christ and the spirit are not the same, both are working in perfect unison for the redemption of sinners and the final fulfillment of the eternal plan, which was accomplished in Jesus Christ and is being applied by the spirit of our God. In fact, as we will see in Peter's sermon, beginning in verse 14 next week, the exaltation and coronation of Jesus in the heavenly places and the pouring out of the spirit are intimately connected, which is why the kingdom of Christ and the sending of the spirit of God are also intimately connected connected. And I will say more about that in the weeks to come. Consider next with me, the immediate reaction to Pentecost, the immediate reaction to Pentecost verses 12 and 13. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. What is the reaction to Pentecost? Amazement, perplexity, mockery. In short, there was a lot of confusion. And let me make a a very important practical point. This is what happens when men seek to interpret or understand the works of God apart from the written revelation of God. What do I mean by that? I mean to say that men, apart from divine instruction, which can only be found in God's word, are led into all sorts of dangers and even damning confusions. In this regard, John Owen said these powerful words, and I quote, nothing but hell is more full of horror and confusion 
than the minds and ways of men destitute of heavenly light, end quote. And this fits very well with what Acts chapter one, verse 12 tells us. Here we have one of the greatest events in all of redemptive history, only to be compared to the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and yet some mocked. It is truly astonishing what the human mind can do when left to itself. So too, in our day, we have people mocking the creation of the world by the word of the Lord, people mocking biblical miracles, and even the work of Jesus himself. What, what did people do when Jesus was hanging on the cross? They mocked. They mocked. It is not surprising then that men can also mock the coming of the spirit. However, there is hope as we will see in verse 37 of chapter two, these same people who mocked at first were eventually brought to repentance and faith, but not without first hearing Peter's sermon, Peter's sermon, which will take us about five sermons to cover this one sermon. Peter preached really long. Yes, yes, yes. That's where I take my comfort from. We need the word of God to explain to us the works of God. And that is the lesson that we learn from the mockery. We can only understand the works of God by looking at the word of God, which is interpreted for us by the spirit of God who illuminates our minds. Apart from the spirit, there is no understanding. Now, as we go along chapter two, we will understand more and more of this amazing event. But for now, I just want to give you a few words of exhortation, a few words of exhortation. I have, I believe, four words of exhortation for you as we consider the events of Pentecost. Number one, examine, examine your life, examine your life. The spirit's ministry is God centered. In verse 11, at the end of verse 11, it says, we hear them telling in our own tongues, what? The mighty works of men? The mighty works of God. The coming of the spirit brought with it a focus on God and his mighty works. While much of the charismatic movement of our day is focused on personal experiences. Notice that. Much of the charismatic movement of our day, while they are so focused on personal experiences, a true move of the spirit is focused on God. This goes very well with the instruction of the Sermon on the Mountain, in which our Lord Jesus tells us to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in Heaven, I submit to you that the only possible way to obey Jesus is by the Spirit's work in us. So I ask you, how do others see in you the mighty works of God? Well, what do I mean? I mean, are they seeing the people around you, your neighbors, your brothers and sisters, are they seeing in you the fruit of the Spirit? You see, the evidence that the spirit is at work in us is not tongues is the spiritual fruit. He produces to my charismatic friends. I don't know if we have any 
sitting around us today. But to my charismatic friends, I would ask not, do you speak in tongues? But are you seeing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control manifested in your life? So he's asking, can you speak tongues? That's the wrong question. Do you see the fruit of the spirit in your life? Have you crucified the flesh with its passions and desires? This, my friend, is the work of the spirit. Number two, second word of exhortation, rejoice, rejoice. Jesus is with us to the end of the age. Pentecost matters for he tells us that Jesus is indeed with us to the end of the age. Now, the presence of God is with us always. Why is this significant? As we finish, let me give you a brief biblical theology of God's presence. I want you to consider with me three verses in conjunction. First, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. We're going to try to pull this together from Old Testament into New Testament. So remember, I'm telling you, rejoice, Jesus is with us. Exodus 33, verse 14 through 16. As Israel was getting ready to leave Sinai and begin their march to the promised land, God made this promise to them through Moses, verse 14. And God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us from up here. For now shall it be known, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every, every other people on the face of the earth? Now, go in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Peter, I'm sorry, Moses essentially said to God, if your presence is not with us, then nothing else matters. This is what makes us different from the world and from all the peoples of the world is your presence with us. And then we come to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. As the risen Christ gives the disciples the great commission and he sends them out into the world, we hear echoes of Exodus 33, but much, much more intimate. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you and behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. And then we come to Acts chapter 2. And what do we see? In Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of this promise. As we read in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is how Jesus is and will continue to fulfill his great commission promise. The spirit is Christ with us. After all, 
The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit is our strength in weakness, for He reminds us of the strength of our Savior. The Spirit is our sanctifier, for He's making us into the image of the Savior. And the Spirit is our comforter, for He teaches us to apply gospel truth to our trials and tribulations. And the Spirit is our seal, for He will never leave us or forsake us until the day when our redemption is finally consummated. The Spirit is Christ with us. Number three, remember, remember, and we're almost done. See, I'm just following the example of Peter. He preached long, and so it's biblical. It's biblical. Remember, remember what? Remember what? Sunday is a glorious day. Sunday is a glorious day. I don't want you to go home without noticing this incredible fact. Pentecost happened on the very first day of the week. Likewise, the Lord Jesus rose from the dead when? On the first day of the week. Two of the most important history-changing and life-altering events in all of human history happen on the same day, the first day of the week, a Sunday. Why? Here's the short answer. Only the risen Christ can send the Holy Spirit. And I will attempt to develop this point in more depth in the weeks ahead. For now, take a moment to ponder the fact that each Sunday, each Sunday as we gather together to worship, we are commemorating, we are remembering, and we are celebrating both the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead and also the outpouring of the Spirit on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in an ultimate sense then. All of us, those who are rejoicing this morning, as well as those who are mourning this morning, those who are celebrating, as well as those who are hurting, all of us, regardless of our current circumstances, political environment, or social conditions, we Christians can always rejoice and be filled with hope because on a day like today, Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit descended with us to dwell. In a very real sense, my brothers and sisters, we gather together on Sundays to remember the truths that we know in order that what we know may inform and even govern how we feel. We don't ignore our feelings. They were given to us for a reason. Nonetheless, as we experience life and as our feelings come and go, we don't lose sight of the realities that cannot and will never change. Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And the spirit of God descended to empower us as the very presence of Christ with us. Therefore, remember why we do what we do. We are here to take our place under the banner of Christ, who through the eternal spirit is making all things new, regardless of what is taking place in the world. Jesus rose from the dead and the spirit has come with us to dwell. And finally, believe, believe. The spirit points us to Christ. There's only one reason you or I or anyone else for that matter can believe in Christ. There's only one reason I can call anyone to believe in Christ. And that reason is this, the Holy Spirit has come and he is at work. To call anyone to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and salvation is a futile endeavor if the Spirit of the Lord is not the one taking those words and applying them to the heart and the mind of the hearer. But the Spirit has come. Therefore, I can say with all confidence, 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Even as we partake of the Lord's supper this morning and remember our Lord's death for our sins upon the cross, it is the spirit, the one who sustains our faith and through him, the Lord Jesus is here with us. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for reminding us once again of the things that we know. That ultimately the testimony that we read about in Acts chapter 2 is the truth that sustains us. That Christ ascended into heaven and it was to our advantage. For by his ascension, the spirit has also descended. And now Christ himself is with us. We praise you, Lord. We praise you for not leaving us as orphans but for sending your spirit to be with us, to be the seal, the guarantee of the promised inheritance. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.